we have Herman Gelman, internet famous, Instagram aficionado, and collector of all things interesting and weird, and one of my dealers. <laughs> Sir, I manage a prestigious blog. Yeah, well, you might have to, pardon me, my, my big dog's outside running amok. My... My my little dog is also here too. I have there he is. I have a puppy that's uh, hoops. Yeah, my my uh, my pit's being stupid. Yeah. So I had to let him outside. So, oh Herman Gelman, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, your accent certainly doesn't sound very American, now does it? <laughs> no, born and raised in uh, Northern England, for better or worse. Uh, and there's a lot of cool stuff in Northern England, like, like Jeff uh, Steel. Steel, yeah, certainly. Tank factories, yep. Well, there and a, a thriving knife industry, still. Uh, growing up, I had all four grandparents serve in the war. It's a very interesting role. So I grew up surrounded with uh, wartime tales. Uh, which strangely, you know, when you're younger, you you don't really pay it so much. I, w- I wish I'd have talked more to my grandparents now than I did years ago. I'll tell you that much. Um, some of the stories, but anyway, that's the genesis of where all my uh, keen collecting and World War Two, and even some comic book stuff comes from. It's having grandparents that were there, you know. That's uh, you never you never told me that. Okay, so let let, let me let me twist a little bit here. If people don't already know, old Jelmet and I, we we met on Instagram and then we actually became friends after a couple of trade and buy deals. Yes, yes. And then I coerced him into coming down to the Tulsa Arms Show, where the first show we did was a little bit of a disaster. Uh, I'll take the blame for that. Yeah, your exact words were, you, I need to get you down here. And I'm like, well, wait, we, we traded a lot. And I'm like, that's a bit weird. You know, I've met some people that I've been friends with online, but I'm like, going to Tulsa in the middle of the night. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was it was a strange meetup, but it worked out for the best. But yeah, we, we really, oh, we did it wrong the first day. Well, you know, if you're going to break the ice with a new friend, I, I guess an entire bottle of Jameson between the two of you, <laughs> before the show the next day is probably the best way to do it because you're going to get to know who you're with real quick through suffering. We we hammered that in 90 minutes. We were watching. Remember, we got to the hotel room. I, I put on a TV and um, Gross Point Blank came on, which if you like, if you like your guns, that's a fantastic film. And uh, we sort of hit it off over that while drinking whiskey and oh my God. Yeah. And, that was and- no- Oh, yeah. You've come down one more time and you're coming for a third. Yeah, hopefully. And uh, I'll be sober, both times sober, and it's it's much more enjoyable. The one of the, you know those hangovers that have you sort of second guessing all your life decisions. It's it that's really yeah. weird. But it, it it's testament to how good the Tulsa show is. Is that I was perhaps top three hungover in my life and I'm an Englishman. I've I've had some beverages in my time. And yet that show was like a shot of adrenaline. Fucking amazing. And it kept me on my feet all day. You know, I yeah. I could have been mortally wounded and I still would have dragged myself around that show all day. It was phenomenal. Yeah, there's there's something for the first time enthusiast to go to the Tulsa show or is there something yeah. terrific and and amazing and very awe-inspiring about that show. I I mean I love gun shows. I go all over New England. The smell, that like musty leather, stale surplus brass and gunpowder, you know, with a little bit of old man bo. That's one of my favorite smells. Gun show, right? Uh, that hits. It's it's it, it's Times 10, any gun show I've ever been to, I've been all over New England, and times 10, any gun show I've ever been to is, is Tulsa. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't think people really appreciate it no. until they get in there and they realize that they're on one floor of two. Yep. yep. And yep. It's, 
it's it's a, it goes as far as the walls in every direction. And this is no small building. This is hey. eleven fucking acres, eleven and a half acres. Of I did a, yeah, yeah. I did a brief write up, and I, I, I now I explained because I it's something I never published, but never you know, um, put on Instagram. But I was going to write like a a, a write up, and uh, I described it as eleven acres of show that you need more than three days to go around and then classically there's there are things that you would never think you'd see in your life right it's like a, a fosbury you know those zigzag revolvers uh, mm-hmm. a webley fosbury and then you get to a table and some guy's got six of them yeah you know yeah. Uh, trench guns just legit ones not mock-ups not forgeries you know just the legit trench guns just everywhere yeah yeah. And then don't don't get me started on the brass knuckles and the trench knife. Just it, it is ridiculous. And I've heard of this show of shows. I've never been, but I can't see that anything can be, to be honest, much better than Tulsa. Tulsa is one of those worldwide known shows, but in our community online, no one really knows about it. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. I've I've met some other Instagrammers that have have gone there, and you know. Some of them, it's their first time. Um, some of them, it's, you know, they're, they're there all the time. But, and you know, yeah, sorry, go on. It, it, and it's all the same thing. Every time you go, there's something new to see. I mean, you know, this year, um, I took Ava for her first show. Mm-hmm. And she just took to it like a duck to water. Once she got past the nerves of all the people, because she's got a, a little agoraphobia, just like her dad, mm-hmm. and, you know, which is kind of weird to say, you know, put yourself in a crowded room full of people uh, and then, you know, suffer from agoraphobia just a bit. But I, I feel more in control there because I'm around basically like-minded individuals. That's, yeah. the, that's the beauty of it. It's everyone talks the talks. And it's, and I also, like you and I have that table, and I live, we just love empowering wisdom. People pick stuff up, oh, what's this? And then you just, you know, it's like show and tell. And then it went the other way around. Other guys come up and they'll tell you stuff that you didn't know. Yep, 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 yep. Or they come up to try and snag the the Viz thirty five that you got for a stupidly cheap price. Mm. Yeah. And then they to bite off of you for a stupidly cheap price because it's not as mm. rare as the, the Polish Eagle versions. And you're looking at them going, mm. "I've done my research, motherfucker. I know what this is now." Yeah. Are you number five jungle carving? Yeah, yeah, the all numbers matching number number five jungle carbine that was re arsenal in 1959. You know, so it's like you're you're not gonna or the the savage sniper. Yeah. So there's like that was one of those that I never even knew savage. They they use the savage rifles as sniper rifles until I get to the show and I see it Mm -hmm. and I. You know, I took a chance. I was like, "Well, oh, fuck it. What, what, what's the harm? I, I talked the guy down to a thousand bucks and I got it. And turns out every bit of it, except the scope mount and the scope is original and yep. proved. Mm-hmm. And come to find out that only 3,148 of those things were ever fucking made. And I was like, oh, shit. If you, you can't do, if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. You can't fake these stampings. You can't fake these marks. You can't fake this. I mean, you could, but it would cost you more than just, you know, it would cost you much more than you would actually get out of the rifle. If you know what you're looking for, it's there. I mean, it's there with, like, guys that want top dollar, but it's also there in the $5 bins. It's there in the racks of shotguns of just some old timer having an estate sale. It's there. That's the beauty of it. Remember that guy that walked up with a first pattern, Brass Hill, Fairborn Sykes knife. And I'm like, where did you get that? He's like, oh, some guy had it for 50 bucks. Yep. And I, I was so mad at that point. I, oh. And then, but then, you know, five minutes later, some other guy stumbles by and I buy a, a second pattern off him with a sheath for a hundred bucks. <laughs> well, there was a, when you, you found that uh, Australian knuckle duster commando oh, dagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was I was geeking out over that. And I was like, oh, where'd you get it? And he's like, down there. And I ran down there, and the guy just happened to have one more sitting out, and it was the, yeah. the Bowie. And, mm. you know, I kept mine. You did not keep yours, but you sold it for significantly more than you paid for it. Well, yeah. Yeah, I got to make the wife happy. I got to, I, I got to show that I've done something. It's not about me. 
One of the other things I was going to mention, so that first show we went to was pre-COVID, and since then, with all like the, you know, panic buying, let's just leave politics out of it, but there was some, I think it moved away from like this collector's fair and to a more of like a, just a people trying to gouge and just selling shit, you know, it was more modern stuff, but I think it's, it's getting back now to what it used to be. But that first Tulsa show as well, it wasn't just that you meet just vendors or people that are collectors, but there were, there were some real interesting guys there. So I, I remember talking to a guy who was a mercenary in the seventies and he all over Africa and he just, he was collecting camo and he just had wild stories. And then there was a South African guy who was ex South African military and he had a fantastic collection of Rhodesian stuff, but then a ton of German of like U-boat stuff. And he was telling me how there was a, a German U-boat base there was South Africa neutral or sort of coerced? I think they weren't. They were neutral, but they were neutral yeah. to the where they didn't get involved in any way. Yeah, but they, but there was a U-boat base there, so certainly some kind of refueling station. And that explains this guy had a ton, and I mean ton of like flare guns and just bizarre um, German or Kriegsmarine stuff that you'd never come across. And he was like, oh, yeah, this is all from South Africa. It was his personal collection. Yeah. Yeah. You, you meet some strange characters there, that's for sure. Oh, well, yeah. Well, no, I take it back. South Africa was on the was on the Commonwealth side. Oh, yeah. Because South Africa is, is settled by the Dutch and um, is a, was a Dutch colony at the time. So Someone down there was letting the Germans pen up, though. That, well, that was I, there was, I think there were subpens on either side of South Africa because the Italians had moved all the way down the backside of the coast of South Af- of Africa and moved all the way down the coast, mm-hmm. the eastern side toward the Middle East. And I think that's where the, a lot of the subpens were, was on that side for the Mediterranean. And then they had some on the west coast of Africa in Oh gosh! Um, oh goodness! Yeah, whatever. It, we're getting off. Point. Congo, Sierra Leone, Cote d'Ivoire, yeah, Sierra Leone areas, somewhere on that. But, but mm. it's the country that's right above South Africa on the east. And I, my geography is so crappy, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Not the Orange Free State. I, I don't know. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm from closer to that, and my. Uh, African geography is not all, not all that. No, I don't know. If we drew a straight line from where you were born and where I was born, I don't know if they'd be as far away as we thought. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the Atlantic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. Anyway, we digress. There's some, very <laughs> there's some very interesting people there, and it's very easy, even though you can be very determined to go around on that first day and rush around people and just try and get to all the bargains you inevitably get waylaid because you meet just fascinating people. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you meet a, a cowboy and his cowboy wife, and they've got a table with about 20 Winchester 1897s, all in like collector grade or serviceable grade, and they want next to nothing for them. You have to stop and chat. Yeah, and, and they're all different things. I mean, you have uh, – he had – if I remember, he had four or five 20-inch riot guns. Stop. I'm just, I get upset for not buying these when you. <laughs> I, had like a ton of, I had a ton of cash in my hand at the time, and I'm like, why didn't I buy those? I get upset for not buying the one that had the, sw- the, the sling swivels attached in the, in the sling. Yeah. Live and learn. We'll find them again. Well, if he ever comes back, I mean, for all we know, he yeah. may be dead. He was an old feller. Yeah. yeah. Shit. Just... Someone's got a literal trailer full of collectible shotguns there. She's more my forte. We should talk about shotguns in a little bit. Anyway. We can talk about shotguns. Uh, so, I just found um, a beautiful Remington 10 for nothing. Did you see what I posted the other day about the heat shield? Yes, and I did. What on earth is going on? Do people know something I don't like? What on earth is going no. on? No, so, people are just People are just going off of other people's ignorance. That's this, all that. No lie. This is an ex-Sarco. Not, I'm not going to dismiss Sarco. It's fine. If you, build, if you just want to build like a 
a mock-up. Fine. But they're flimsy and they bent. This was a bent. It's that flimsy. The, the guard was bent. The screw heads were all chewed. It was when you buy them retail new, they're like $125. It was even listed as, maybe people didn't even go and read the description. It, as a reproduction heat shield. And that bidding closed at $690. Yeah, because you can actually go to, uh, I can't remember the name of the website, and buy one for like 200 or 250 brand new. Yeah, East Lake, they make them in-house. They're the best quality you can get. Well, Stock yeah, they're using the original blueprints to make them. Yeah, Numrich, you know, gun parts store, went, you know, they, 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 they're in and out of stock. I think I pro- there's probably just a couple of manufacturers that, you know, they probably wait till they got several hundred and then they ship them to these guys. That's how it is. Never, there's never a constant supply. There's, you got to wait a few months. And if you're that impatient and you want to pay $700 or you're an idiot, then... If you're going to pay $700, just pony up another 3000 and buy an actual trench gun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, why not? If, you, if you're prepared to drop that kind of cash, just go to Rock Island uh, Auctions, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, one of my grail guns is the Ithaca 37 trench gun. Um, everyone, everyone. Yeah, everyone's grail gun is an Ithaca 37 trench gun. Now, I understand that even a bone stock standard Ithaca 37 that may have been a prison guard gun is going to pull anywhere between eight and fifteen hundred dollars, depending on its condition, at minimum, minimum mm. yeah. seven hundred. And that's with if it's got like a cracked, it's got a cracked corn cob forend, or it's got the cracked rear stock. Right I just the pistol grip. I, I just so saw he, yeah, I just saw a Steven six twenty Marshall Mark, you know, U.S. stamp, but significant cracks in the wrist, the floor. You know, it wasn't. It was a safe queen. I don't think you'd be. You don't want to risk damaging it further. And I think they are they're post World War Two, but that thing went for like thirteen hundred bucks. No, no heat shield, just the riot length, you know. Yeah, any any old, I mean, for whatever reason, any shotgun period right now, yeah, it is steadily creeping up in price. Yeah, uh, I I saw you know Mossberg five hundred going for you know five hundred bucks, three hundred dollar shotgun. How they go for five hundred? Uh, I'll, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I, I, I'm I'm surprised. I mean, I'm not surprised, but I am surprised. You know, and I have my I have my I've only got whoa, I've got I've got a few shotguns, but not that not not as many as you do, and not as cool as yours are. But two of my shotguns are straight up working shotguns, so they're never gonna be cool. They just get the shit kicked out of them, and they get a lot of sleds mm-hmm. barrel. The other ones, yeah, they, uh, they'll they probably get shot maybe two, three times their entire life. They're going to get cleaned and loved and cared for and passed on down the line. Yep. But, you know, I, I was – I you were there – you weren't there the year that I bought my Remington 11. Mm-hmm. But I was able – recently able to track my Remington 11's lineage to a prison for German Kriegsmarine sailors – here in Oklahoma, I was able to track that shotgun to here, and it was down by um, between Lawton and Altus in a little town. Uh, gosh. Um, so they didn't put them anywhere near the ocean? No, no, no. Nope. Nope. They didn't put them near any bodies of water. They put them in the center of the country. I'm sure like most Germans, they were just happy to be out of it. Well, yeah, Oklahoma had uh, 14 prisoner of war camps, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Most, of, most of the prisoner of war camps were in the South. We're, we're so, going to digress again, because this is one of my grandfather's positions after, after he was a commando medic in Normandy, was guarding a POW. So I got a lot to say about POW bases as well. But we, should, we should get back to shotguns briefly. Oh, yeah, but... You know, I was able to track my, my Remington back, and, you know, it's supposed to have a blued finish because it's, you know, of, of the 1943 Ducks and Doves pattern that's on it because it was a commercial receiver. But, you know, it was one of those, oh, shit, we need more shotguns. So they went to went there. They went back to, to Winchester mm-hmm. or Remington, and they said, hey, we need the rest of everything you built. Oh, we're already tooled up for civilian production. Fuck it. We don't care. We're taking it all. 
Yeah, same for my Stevens, but it's the other way around. They got a huge order, and Stevens already had the commercial, like the checkered grips and things like that. You know, once once they exhausted what was on the shelves, you just got a plain stock. But these these are the things as a collector that goes for authenticity when you see one of these in the wild. These yeah. are the little, these are the little things that add up if you know what stock it should or shouldn't have or how things can be explained. Well, the beautiful thing is now with with society being so technologically intertwined with each other, even if you don't have the answer, it's going to take you about five minutes to get one. Yeah, I just call you up. Say, hey, get that shotgun book out. <laughs> yeah, you call, call it. You've done but, that a couple times. Yeah. Well, you know what? There's great information out there in forums, but it still does not be having the reference book. Like, that's where this stuff comes from. And sometimes, you know, these forums aren't forced. They're not always going to be there. They're not really generally monetized after these forums. And they'll disappear sooner or later. And you've got to have the reference books. Yeah. You know, if you want to pass on your collection and you want it to have, like, a decent resale value, you know, because you want to be able to demonstrate the, the worth of what you've got. Well, you know, with the, the, the books is I like to vet the information that I'm given. You know, when mm-hmm. we're always, I mean, everybody's got this anecdotal story about, oh, well, the reason that one doesn't have a hollowed out bolt is because it was re-arsenaled and, you know, such and such, and they just force batched mm-hmm. a new to it because of whatever, whatever. And then you go back and you're like, God, did that guy just feed me a line of bullshit? And you go and you break out your, your reference books. And you have to weed through two or three of them before you finally get to the answer. It turns out the guy was telling you the truth. Yeah. And you're like, well, son of a bitch. Well, now I don't feel so bad. Now I realize I've got something that's worth a whole lot more than I thought it was, you know? Yep. A lot of people discount, um, you know, like right now, uh, people are like, is it not import marked, not import marked, not import marked. I think that's going to become more and more of a premium to actual hardcore collectors. Yeah, because it's what you want those war trophies. You want granddad brought it back. Granddad, it's a war trophy. Yeah, I mean you're you're gonna you're gonna start seeing less and less of the non-import marked surplus market hitting the streets, and guys are gonna come back and they're gonna be spending fourteen, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars on an M1 carbine from Ethiopia that's got a massive import mark stamped on the underside of the barrel. Well, see century arms, those they've, they've ruined some beautiful guns. Those because. Yeah. And in the same breath, century has done it right too. It just, it really depends on who's on the stamping machine that day. Yeah. I mean, I've Sometimes seen you get a nice discreet, you know, just yeah, put it somewhere, put it maybe on the magwell, but just stamping that shit on the slide or on the frame right next to some walk. Some serial numbers. Oh, please. Yeah, see, my my one grand. It's a it's an import, or it's a re-import, which is weird because it's U.S. property. I don't know why we'd have to import it back into our own country, but whatever. Mm-hmm. But the the stamping that they did on the barrel was so light, I didn't even yeah. see it for a couple of times. I went over it, and then I looked, yeah. and I was like, "Holy shit, that's got an import mark on it." People so still do it. I mean, there's, there's, there's. I'm not going to name names, but there's a place out of Kentucky and there's a place in Ohio, which God bless them, they bring in some wonderful stuff, but they stamp the shit out of those frames. I mean, yeah, I, I can't, I can't be mad at them. Import laws being what they are, they're stupid as hell. Mm-hmm. But I can't be mad at them for making sure that they're clearly stamped so they can get, yeah, they're, they're not getting hit with anything. But yeah, no, they're just real to it. They're taking some gorgeous stuff and making it. Yeah. yeah. It has the value. It does. I mean, you buy sometimes you get these nice collector's pieces, but an egregious stamp will hurt the value. Yeah. Well, if it's got the right stamp at the right places, the value can quadruple. That's why, you know, I, I like the old things. If it doesn't have any marks, if, if Grandpa brought it back, then wonderful. So I, I was going to say earlier, when getting back to shotguns, my favorite subject, is I feel like it's a neglected, say, market or niche. Just, you know, everyone's obsessed with trench guns or having legit martial guns, but just having the same ones without the stamps is just as fun to collect and shoot. 
Okay, there, there lies the kicker. Yeah. You don't feel so guilty about shooting the ones that aren't marshland marked. Exactly. And the, because uh, it, if, if it breaks, well, eh, it's going to suck. But you're not breaking something that is literally tied to one of the most horrific time periods of, of our history. Yeah. You, you're not holding a tangible piece. You know, uh, for for me, you know, grabbing the Viz 35 or the FN 1910-22 or the Luger or whatever, I'm grabbing a hold and I've got a piece of an evil empire in my hand. Yeah. And there's there's something to be said about holding that, and you, you, and I, I I'm hesitant to say you get a connection to it, but you do. For me, it's more of these are war trophies, you know, someone's relative. This is yeah. what I'm how these are on the market. Someone put their life in danger, fought their way, in some cases, from fucking Africa up to Italy, into France, fought their way into Nazi Germany, right? And then grabbed that off the last German they fucking killed or took prisoner. Like, this is wonderful. And then you've got this, this trophy that speaks so much. Yeah. About it, history. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, and it, it, it prompts me to look at history differently, you know, and, and not just at the superfluous stuff that you see on TV, you know, not the Band of Brothers stuff, not the, you know, the, the general history shit you see, but it, it prompts me to go off and look deeper into history, the stuff that you don't really hear about. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've started, I've started studying on um, recipients of the Victoria's Cross. And yeah. I did not realize, I mean, I knew the Victoria's Cross was, oh, it's a, you know, it's, it's Great Britain's equivalent to the Medal of Honor, but. Yeah, it's a gallantry. It's, I love that Gallantry. To get a Victoria's Cross, unless you're dead in the process mm-hmm. that you were doing. Yeah. There's, I think there was a handful of living Victoria's Cross recipients. The rest of them are all awarded posthumously. And it's like, that's just insane. And, you know, grabbing a hold of that number five Mark I started me down that trail. And I started watching documentaries, and I started watching movies, and I started watching, you know, YouTube clips. I mean, Jeremy Clarkson from Top Gear, uh, when he <laughs> to his first wife, he used to do a lot of history stuff because her dad was a Victoria's Cross recipient. And he I did a special on him. And then he did one on the guys that raided the subpens with the USS Campbelltown. They turned into a big bomb. Yeah, that, that's pretty, that's pretty sad. Some of those, seeing some of some of those old boys cry because they regret not shooting all the Germans because they came back and then shot whatever. There, there's a there's a pretty decent. I think it was made in the eighties. There's a there's a decent documentary on that. It might be on YouTube. It's oh, it's harrowing to watch. Well, yeah, and they were sitting there. They were they were playing with stuff that had never been tried before, mm-hmm. and they're they're going to sail up this jetty all the way to the subpens. Mind you, they're going to have to go past like four or five fortified shooting positions that are gun emplacements with searchlights, past the minefields, in a World War One destroyer, and then they're oh, going to and, and wooden speedboats. Don't forget, and wooden like basically yeah. wooden speedboats. Yeah. And then little wooden speedboats, and then they're going to ram this destroyer into the into the lock, and then they're going to use an untested, unproven liquid nitrogen fuse to blow the ship and blow the locks. And if, if you're listening to me and you don't understand what locks are, it was how they would bring the sub. They would open these doors, let all the seawater in, and they would bring the submarine in, and it would sit on a cradle, and then they would shut these big doors, the locks. And then they would pump all the water out, and you would have a dry dock for the ship to sit in. So, if you grow up around canals, you might know what a lock is. The, yeah. These, these, yeah. Are, these are dry dock locks. These are, these are like the biggest doors you're probably ever going to see in your lifetime. Yeah, they're <laughs> 14, 15 feet thick of concrete and steel. Yeah. And they were in a World War One destroyer, which if anybody's ever played the video game World of Warships, USS Campbelltown is in there. It's a tiny, 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 tiny tiny little ship and in real life it was a tiny tiny it was not much bigger than a pair of of, of uh, pt boats american pt boats stuck you know stem to stern it was about as long as two pt boats with an old coal boiler and it wasn't very fast and it 
they stripped it down and they put a bunch of dudes in there. And these guys were like, you know, if a bullet hits this, any bullet, it's going to go right through the hole and out the other side. Mm-hmm. It was an unarmored ship. I mean, it was no better than the wooden boats that were floating behind it. But yeah, they they parked this bitch up on top of a. On yeah, they parked on. It basically parked on top of it. <laughs> they ran through it. After the guys went through there and did all their, their running amok and, you know, they were on this big time schedule and they still managed to complete their entire goal. Well, I think almost all of them were either captured or killed. Some got away, but most of them were captured or killed, including the, the, the guy that planned the whole attack. And then they were sitting there wondering if the, if the explosion was ever going to happen. And it happened almost 24 hours later blew the locks wide open and they're like okay mission completed now we can go we can go spend the rest of our war in a prison camp because we did what we were out to do and we just mm-hmm. really fucked up the germans whole sub plan over here and they did it was great yeah, yeah that was the, the major plot for the atlantic wasn't it yeah so but no yeah we totally got off shotgun but yeah. welcome to our mm-hmm. world everyone how we talk we just go <laughs> down roads and up trails and around hills and we have no no real... It's going to be a fun nursing home that we end up in, that's for sure, hearing all these babbling stories. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, your package shipped out today, too. Oh, nice, oh, nice one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Returning from Sheffield to it, so... Yeah, yeah, more than... You're, you're, you're getting more than you bargained for, actually. I meant to send you some pictures when I was back home a couple of months ago. I went past a few of the old knife works. They're no longer knife works, but the building's there. I was going to send you pictures of this is where the stuff was fabricated. Little brick. The best way I can describe it is like brick warehouses, you know, but with lots of windows with the natural light in. Oh, yeah, uh, no. And they, I, I, they might, the, the men would rent a room. They'd rent a table in these. Called them little masters. Did you... um? Did you ever see the guys that were doing, you know, the, the guys that were doing a lot of knife sharpening for like butcher knives and stuff for, at factories? They would lay on their stomachs and they would have dogs lay on their legs in the winter. That was something I saw recently. That lost it. Whatever. That that was more of a French thing. The the way the Brits did it was um, you would straddle it and lean forward. You wouldn't lay on your stomach. But yeah. But everyone would get silica silicosis they'd all get the silicone poisoning i mean i've seen these wheels and my father used to tell me stories of he'd go down these mills this is when they were powered by water which is insane um some of them had steam but some of them still had a wheel but there was just this there'd be a grinding wheel and then behind it this huge yellowish sort of growth that almost looked like a giant fungus but it was just all the silicone that would build up from all this sharpening but if, if it's sticking to the walls, point being, like, what's that doing to your lungs? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's why respirators are so important nowadays. Yeah, well, back then, you know. But they were, you know, yeah, what would what, 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 what say about that then? We, yeah, we, not, the Industrial Revolution wouldn't have happened if OSHA had anything to say about yeah, it. Well, it was that or the coal mines or, you know, working in a foundry where you need eyes in the back of your head. So, like, the Pick your dangerous vocation. Growing up in Sheffield, growing up in the industrial north, pick your dangerous vocation, right? It's up to you. Yeah. Mining, forging, or grinding, any one of those, it's up to you. Or you pick one of those, and then you turn out to be a metal god. Yeah. Look, look, I mean, look at the, the, the five greatest bands to come out, or five greatest rock bands, heavy metal bands, whatever you want to call them, five most influential bands to the rock genre and all its little offshoots, all pretty much came north of London. Yeah. There's, uh, there's actually, Sheffield has a lot of ties to uh, the music industry, which is... Well, isn't, isn't, isn't Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath, he's, he was a steel worker. Is that right? Yeah, well, he had the tips of his fingers cut off in a, in a sheet metal accident, mm-hmm. and then he went back to work because he, he he's like, well, my music days are over. Ah. And, his uh, his foreman came and handed him a record and said, listen to this. He's like, I don't like jazz. He goes, no, 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 listen to this. I can talk to me. So he went and listened to it, and he goes, oh, this guy's pretty good. Went back and talked to his foreman. His foreman goes, he lost his fingers like you did in a different type of accident, but that's him playing now with artificial tips. So mm. that, you know, the whole 
you know, the whole uh, Douglas Botter. You know, he, he could he could fly faster, he could turn tighter, he could do steeper dives, climb harder than any other fighter pilot in the RAF because his blood did not have as far to go to his feet because he didn't have anything below the knees. That's uh, that's a very interesting story. Yeah, uh, actually, yeah, Doug- the, the blood can't pool in your feet, can it? Yeah. Yeah, Douglas Botter lost his leg in a training accident. He was trying to uh, showboat, and I think he was flying a tiger moth, and he crashed it, and in the crash, he lost both of his legs below the knees. So when World War II starts up, he says, fuck this. He goes and fits himself with a set of wooden legs and goes to get his flight rating back. Don't know how he managed to do that. I think he convinced the Air Admiralty that, you know, uh, guys, we, we, we need pilots, and I know how to fly. Yeah, the 20 minutes. They needed pilots. And he ended up being one of the more successful squadron commanders. Eventually, he was shot down, but they, uh, the Germans treated him very well because they saw that he flew that well with such a, a gross disability in their eyes, you know, not having legs below the knees. Like, how do you do it? Oh, no, but there was also, back in those days, especially in early World War One. it was still the age of chivalry, and it was... You know, it was like that battlefield etiquette. Like you were met if you were an officer, and if they recognized you were, you know, an ace pilot, I, you kind of were met with at least some well, recognition, the, right? And that that carried over into World War II um, with the fighter pilots, at least. I, I can't say as much about the German bomber pilots and, and stuff, but the fighter mm-hmm. pilots. I mean, those 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 German fighter pilots in the earth. I mean, they were still, you know, the the white scarves and the flying goggles and the. You know, they throw a salute up to their enemy after they both ran out of ammunition in a heavy dogfight, and then they would fly back. And and there's that story about the uh, the German fighter pilot in the later stages of the war that escorted the the, the B-17 all the way back to England because mm. it was so mortally wounded. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to escort this thing back. I can see that, you know, pretty much everybody in that plane is either dead or wounded, and this plane's living on a wing and a prayer. And it'd be an easy kill for me, but that's not what I'm about. Mm. So, yeah, no, yeah. It, it, so, two, two things that are conjured in my mind then, I just get this uh, vision. So, first one was back in the early stages, World War One. well, pre, pre-biplanes, just the Zeppelins, right? Can you imagine the horror, and this is my granddad told me these stories because he's from the town that was bombed by a Zeppelin. So you just, you're a villager. You've never seen flight. You, maybe you're aware because you've seen it in a newspaper that the Wright brothers have managed to fly down a fucking beach somewhere. But or Louis, or Louis Valerio flew over the English Channel. Yeah. You're going around your business one day, and then you look up, and there's just some giant sausage safe. <laughs> and, of course, it's German. Germans and their giant sausage, right, are just above you, raining down bombs, and you can't do shit about it. Just, yeah, you, you don't that can shoot up that high. Yeah, the, the horror for the, you know, the average person in those days, it, you, I think it'd be hard to sort of understand you, uh, to really appreciate today just the, how alien that would seem is that all of a sudden there's this giant flying machine that's just dropping incendiaries on you. So it was that. And then the second thing we were talking about World War II dogfights is my grandmother was in London. She, she worked in the... Um, cabinet war room so this is, this is a whole other podcast in and of itself what my grandmother did but she witnessed the battle of britain and she just told me it was the most insane thing you're looking up you're just seeing your country is the fates being decided in the sky above you you're seeing your pilots just fighting off the germans and there's like uh planes going down here there's men bailing out parachuting down she just described this incredible scene of watching your nation flying for itself uh, and then, yeah, just say the planes going down. And she describes watching this. Um, she wasn't sure whether it was German or Brit, but watching this parachutist go down. And other guys just fell, you know. Bananas. You imagine, imagine seeing that shit? It, it's hard to fathom. Yeah. It it's is. hard to fathom because, you know, living in so, the U.S., the, the last time we saw war on our own soil was when we were fighting ourselves during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So we've been we've been relatively isolated from all of these events, so we can look at things through a through a you know a good long lens, and we can stay far away. And you know it, it it's different when you go over there and you start talking to the people that were there and saw it as kids. You know, I mm-hmm. was 
I was, you know, six years old, and I remember looking up and seeing planes fly over, or I remember hearing bombs explode off into the past. I remember the church next to us all burning down because it got firebombed, and, you know, we were living in the in the train tunnels, and, you know, it was everyone keep calm and carry on, and, yeah, I would I would love to pick the brains of, oh, I, I don't know, say the Dutch, um, go to Belgium, talk to the Belgians. Yeah. Imagine, imagine being in an occupied country and having like parents that were in some kind of resistance. That's fucking amazing. I would love to meet like the. There needs to be, and this is sort of escapes me. There's not enough in Hollywood of this of um, the partisans. There needs to be more movies about partisans, especially late war. It's fucking amazing. The uh, American Museum of Military history or whatever it's it's um it's down in georgia at fort benning now um they have all the they have all the armor that used to be at fort knox at the Patton museum uh they've got all these um oh it's it's the world war ii museum i'm sorry it's the u.s world war ii museum um they've got all this stuff my dad went there and he said it was the coolest thing because you know you, you walk around and everything you know these people would you, you press a button and then a holographic image would come alive and come talk to you about what you were looking at. Like they were computerized docents coming to mm-hmm. talk to you. They were dressed in period clothing and they were, you know, you could hear the background, you could hear the battle in the background and so on and so forth. But uh, they used to have a podcast about movies at war or something like that. And um, they would sit down and they would talk about movies like hell is for heroes and, and, um, Von Ryan's Express and uh, oh, I mean, if it was a war movie, they talked about it. And I saw, it, was, it didn't have to be American; it could have been German. There was, there was a, a, a they did they talked about the Sam Peckinpah movie. Uh, Hel, not Hell is for Heroes. No, that that was that was a Hell is for Heroes was for Steve McQueen. Um, shit. I can see there it had uh, uh I just read about it the other day too. God dang it. Fuck it. I can't remember. But they, they talked about all these movies and they, they, they talked about um Anthropod or Anthropoid that one of the assassination plots to kill Hitler and how it failed yeah. it. The um little known you know, one of the things that people don't know is that Rommel was actually executed by the Germans for his part in the Valkyrie attempt against Hitler. Really? Yes. Yes. So Rommel didn't take official part, but he was aware of the plot. And after it failed and Hitler survived, the Gestapo went around and started rounding up everybody they thought or had proof to the fact had knowledge of the event and Rommel Um. on that list. And he was back home with his family, and the Gestapo showed up at his house. And he told his family, he, said, he looked at the guy and said, can I have a moment to tell my family goodbye? And he already told his family, you know, if they show up, I have to go, and you will never see me again. Mm. And that's pretty much what he told them, and he, he told everybody goodbye. They went out to his car, or they went out to the car, and he got in, and one of the guys handed him a pistol and said, do you want to do it, or do you want us to do it? You want to go your way, or you want us to take you out? And he chose. I, if I remember correctly, I think he 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 had them do it as kind of like a you know you're gonna to have to you're gonna to have to kill me because I'm not I'm not going out like that. Wow. So he kill him, but yeah, you know, Does, general, you know, one of the greatest generals of World War II. Even though he fought for the Nazi Party, never swore allegiance to the Nazis. So that was kind of a it's kind of a weird thing, but yeah. There's one there's one movie I you know, whatever time I got remaining moving babbling that I really want to promote and it's really recommend that people see. It's a Russian movie called Come and See, and it's it's fairly recent. I think the last twenty years, and it's set in Belarus, Belarusia, whatever you want to call it, and it's about a young boy who is trying to join the partisans while the fervent Nazis are coming and destroying his village, but it's 
it's horrific. It captures all of the uh, atrocities of the war, but what makes it truly interesting is because this is Russia, they're using weapons and uniforms of the era. So they just went around. They, didn't, they couldn't really have a wardrobe department, but there were enough people around. So I, I think it might have been the 80s, but there were enough of these relics around that they used them for the movie, and it's live ammunition. And so when the actors look terrified, it's because it's actually live ammunition. <laughs> That's, that's the first Russian movie to make. Yeah, it's an incredible movie anyway, without all these extra, but knowing that like most of what you see is legit, be it uniforms or guns, and that it's live ammo, it's, it's mind-blowing. Heartily recommend it. Come and see. You'll recognize some of the posters. If you Google come and see, you will recognize, um, I guarantee, some of the uh, screenshots. It's, it's being banded around. Sometimes they're banded around as historical pictures, but it's not. It's from this movie. Anyway, people should see that. I'm tempted to watch it again this weekend. It's horrific. Banging my head since this whole time we've been talking about trying to figure out what the name of that movie was. Uh, it's got Maximilian Shell. Um. Dang it. Uh, Google's your help. So I used to love Saturday mornings was, you know, they used to play. Remember, you know how, like, after World War II, uh, they it, used was, to, it was crosses or Cross of Iron. Oh, okay. okay. Cross of Iron. Not, uh, cross of Iron. It has James, not Operation Crossbow. Maximilian Shell, James Mason. Yeah, oh, yeah. Warner. I mean, it's predominantly Germans. I mean, but James Coburn as the uh, the main guy, and he uh, he's a he's a sergeant, and yeah, it it's one of those it's one of those good fucking movies that you have to watch, but it's right. hard to watch because I'll look, Sam, I'll look it up. Sam Peckinpah was one of those guys that pushed the boundaries. One of the most violent movies I ever saw when I was a kid was The Wild Bunch. Mm. And, uh, I mean, the ending of that movie is just insane. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's great. It's got Ernest Borgnine. It's got, um, oh, gosh, Ernest Borgnine. Um, oh, damn it. Um, one of the... William Holden, Robert Ryan, uh, Edmund O'Brien, Warren Oates. Yes, that's what I was trying to think of. Warren Oates. Uh, uh, what was his name? Sergeant Holka from from Stripes. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah Sergeant Ooh. Holka from Stripes. Yeah. You know, I think Cross of Iron was the, in part, inspiration for Inglorious Bastards, the newer one. Well, they're, they're actually... You know, it's like uh, the Dirty Dozen was inspired by the Filthy Thirteen. Um, I'm I'm loving Glorious Bastards. I'm not happy with the ending. They they could have whatever. But the whole scene in the uh, the underground bar, you know, where they get rumbled by the Germans. Yeah. And I nearly called my dog Stieglitz. I love Stieglitz so much. Uh, that that scene, I love it. That. That's the bear Jew. <laughs> oh, but yeah, that was a that was a that was a good movie. Mm-hmm. I, I I did enjoy it. I mean, I loved its play on the idea because that that really was a thing. I was you know there was an attempt by the Allies to kill Hitler by sneaking behind enemy lines and posing as Germans, and that's what prompted the idea for Quentin Tarantino to go. Well, okay, mm-hmm. well let's just see what happens if we actually achieved that goal. Let me just play with mm-hmm. it a little. And then, of course, Tarantino throws in his little uh, MacGuffin, um, which he's famous for. You know, in Pulp Fiction, the MacGuffin was the the um, the briefcase. Nobody knew what was in the briefcase. Yeah. Uh, in, in that movie, the MacGuffin was Aldo's scar along his neck. No one knows where it came from. And he never yeah. explained it. So, yeah... We could go on and on and on, but I'm pretty sure by now people that would listening probably have turned us off. 
we left shotguns behind years ago. Oh no, I say we do it again though. We do it, we need to do it again. Yeah, we could talk at length about uh, shotguns and a separate one for familial war stories. That I have. Yeah, because I got a I got a couple from Vietnam from my dad's dad. Oh yeah, oh god, Vietnam stories. Yeah, I don't know what's worse to be honest. They're they're all they're all horrible. Yeah, I I've had horrible on both counts. You know. All right. I still well, I still. I still you know, if you like me, you grew up in Europe. You, you European theater. Uh, we didn't really learn much about the Pacific theater, but you know, if you're in America, half of this country, their war wartime experience was the Pacific, which was worse, you know. And then the thing goes to Vietnam. There's wars, but uh, wars hell. But being in the jungle at the same time—that's just another layer of shit, isn't it? You know, yeah. wars hell, but it's all right if. During a lull in the fighting, you're in Sicily or Southern France. Yeah, you can you can go into you know a, a town that's relatively friendly. You know they're not trying yeah. to kill. Whereas you know you you go into uh, I don't know you know um, Phuket or something like that, and somebody fucking <laughs> hands you a coke bottle that's laced with TNT, and many you crack the top mm-hmm. and blow up. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And I, 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 be, be, being British, my blood's too thick for the jungle. So yeah, I don't know how many. Oh yeah, you. That's why you guys got the Australians to do your jungle fighting for you. No, I've, I've been doing it in the jungle. All right, this is uh, this has restored some pep to my step, reinvigorated mine. Yeah. Yeah, I feel a little bit better myself. Yeah, it works. All right, my friend. Let's do this again. All right. Well. I'll write, I'll write down some talking points about when I get back to shotguns. I'm thinking I've got some very interesting things to say, so it would be collected in that front. If anyone's still listening at this point. Yeah, if anyone's still listening, I'm pretty sure they would be. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's all thank Herman Gelmet for his time because it's actually an hour ahead where he's at versus where I'm at, so he's probably pretty tired and needs to go to sleep. Yes, it's probably my bedtime, but thank you for having me and... Uh, it's my pleasure. Well, we will talk to you again soon, sir. We will. All right, my friend. Take it right. easy. Later.